Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to uh, the book of Jude. We're continuing to work our way through this short letter at the end of the New Testament, and we are in Jude verses 14 through 16 this evening. So please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Hear now the word of the Lord from Jude, verses 14 through 16. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the, godly, uh, all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless it to us this evening. Would you uh, show us Jesus Christ? May we know what it means to follow after him, uh, to not be ungodly, but to live lives of godliness and Christ-likeness. We pray that you would um, help us to do this by your spirit. In, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Jude is a difficult and strange book. No doubt as we've worked our way through it, you've already felt some of this strangeness and difficulty. Part of the difficulty of this book comes from the fact that Jude often uses obscure vocabulary that's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. So uh, we don't have anywhere else to go to, to sort of compare what he is saying and try to better understand it and clarify some of what he says. Some of the strangeness of Jude, though, comes from the fact that he quotes old religious texts that are not included in the Old Testament. And our passage this evening includes one of those quotes from a book called First Enoch. And that quote in Jude has caused no small amount of confusion. But I do not want this confusion to distract us from our main objective. Those who have been in military combat talk about the ferocity and the, the shock of battle. Battle overwhelms the senses. There are bullets flying overhead, artillery shaking the ground, men and vehicles and bullets kicking up the dust. There's nothing but the sound of gunfire in your ears and adrenaline pumping through your veins. And all that chaos and confusion, hearing the voice of your commanding officer give direction to you becomes nearly impossible. Each soldier then needs to keep his eyes on his objective and accomplish the task that he is there to do to the best of his ability. Well, to some, talk of Jude's use of Enoch in these verses can be like that battle. The discussion stirs up so much controversy that it leads only to confusion and chaos, and in the midst of all of the fog of war, the objective can be lost. It's easy to get distracted from the main point that Jude is trying to make here because he quotes from this non-biblical source. Scholars and theologians throughout the millennia have had a variety of opinions about Jude, chapter, or Jude verses 14 and 15. 
Some have even pointed to this quote from Enoch as the reason why Jude should not be included in the Bible. But this quotation from 1 Enoch doesn't need to be treated any differently from other quotes that we have in the Bible from non-biblical sources. We think of Paul's use of pagan poets and philosophers in Acts chapter 17 or Titus chapter 1. Well, here, Jude quotes a non-canonical source, that is, a book that's not included in the canon of Scripture. And who Enoch was and what first Enoch was about, why Jude quotes it, are all interesting questions, but outside the scope of this sermon and not within our main objective. So to get lost in the fog of these details is to miss the point. We'll look at what Enoch writes in this verse because Jude quotes it and uses it to make his broader argument. And through this quote, Jude teaches us something important. Because what Jude has to say is vitally important to us, and we cannot miss it. Jude's reappropriated quotation from Enoch, when placed in its context within this short letter at the end of our Bible, shows us something important. We have to escape the fog of war to see that Jude is showing you and me that judgment is coming. One day soon, the judge, our Lord Jesus Christ, will return. And in that day, as Jude says through Enoch, all the ungodly will be judged. In this uh, quote from First Enoch, both the word all and a variation of ungodly appear four times each. This repetition should be a a flashing neon light reinforcing the fact that no one who is wicked will escape divine judgment, divine wrath, and the judgment that Christ will bring upon them. All the ungodly will be judged based on their deeds of ungodliness, which, as he says, they have done in an ungodly way. All evildoers will answer for their actions. But Jude, very helpfully, does not leave us to guess what sorts of behavior will be judged. Of course, everything that he said so far, all of that is to be condemned, and all of it is ungodliness that will be judged. But in verse 16, he goes on to mention some specific sins that the infiltrators in these churches Jude writes to have committed. And he shows that these that it's it's precisely these kinds of sins that Christ will condemn. All those who commit the sins he lists in verse 16 and fail to turn from their sin and repentance and faith in Christ will be judged severely. And so what we're going to do is take some time to dive down deep into especially verse 16, looking at this list of sins each in turn and see what Christ would have us to know about these sins and about their insidiousness and about, and about the fact that all of them will be judged All of those who commit them will be judged according to the righteous standard of Jesus Christ. The first thing that he says is that these men are grumblers and malcontents. They are, uh, as as some translators have it, and and, uh, what might be some more of a, a literal translation, they are grumbling malcontents. These words sort of combine together. And the idea in in this phrase, uh, grumbling malcontents, malcontents is that these men are discontent with their lot in life and they're grumbling and complaining about their situation. That's 
evident. But the way that Jude uses this phrase carries along with it the understanding that these men are actually complaining about a situation which is one of their own making. These men have have gotten themselves into this position, and yet they're blaming someone else. They're blaming God for their troubles. Their own actions have brought them to this place of judgment and condemnation, Yet they don't see this. They don't turn from their sin in repentance and faith. They don't worship God as they must. Think of it like this. A married man is unfaithful to his wife. She finds out about it and divorces him because of his infidelity. This man loses his wife and his children and his home. His life is a wreck because of his own sin But he then turns around and blames his wife for his cheating ways. Or he blames the other woman for seducing him. Or he blames God for allowing it to get to this situation, allowing the the, uh, the situation to get this bad that his wife will leave him. He blames other people. He, he, He is responsible for his own actions, but he shifts that responsibility to others. Instead of understanding that he is held to account for his own sin. And that the Lord is judging him by taking these things away from him. The Lord is calling him to account for his sin. This man has sinned in grievous ways. He's held responsible by the Lord and by his wife for his actions. And yet he still sees himself as the victim. These grumbling malcontents are like this man. They are in a mess of their own making and yet blame God for it. They try to play the victim even though they are at fault. Grumbling and complaining are perennial issues among God's people. We saw earlier in the book of Jude how the Israelites were barred from the promised land because of their complaints against God. If it was true that the Israelites who saw the mighty power of the Lord firsthand in Egypt and at the Red Sea and at Sinai, if it's true that they were complaining against the Lord and his servant Moses, how much more will you and I and others in the church today be tempted to complain against the Lord? More common than, I think, complaining against God, Christians complain against and grumble about the Lord's servants, the leaders of his church. This is very likely what these men were doing in Jude's day, complaining about the church's leaders. You and I can see this same sort of attitude today, can't we? Certainly in in the broader evangelical church, but also in our denomination, in the PCA. There's a lot of suspicion and many accusations being thrown around, and there's the imputing of nefarious motives to men in this denomination, especially as debates over core issues uh, play out online. Dear ones, you would not believe some of the hateful and untrue things said about our pastor and about the GRN by elders and pastors and lay people who differ from us on vital issues. There are some who complain and grumble or even worse, make false accusations and so seeds of suspicion about godly men and their ministries. 
And they do all of that rather than have open and honest conversations about some of these debates between the different sides in the PCA. Dear ones, this attitude of grumbling malcontent must be avoided. We can't let that discontent fester in our hearts. It's ungodly and it's wicked. And as Jude tells us, the Lord will judge all of those who behave in this ungodly way. But this isn't the only sin that the Lord will judge. He also says here that these men are following their own sinful desires. These men who have infiltrated the churches seek to follow their own sinful desires. Their their own personal satisfaction is their main objective. They won't rest until their own desires are met. Carl Truman, in his recent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, tracks the historical development of our societal shift toward the self. Above all, what matters most to people today is me, is my personal well-being, my happiness, and my psychological fulfillment. The whims and desires of the self are thrust to the forefront of everything we do. In the introduction to this book, Truman has his readers ask a question of themselves to show how this turn to the self has really become part of the air we breathe. He says that we should ask, quote, what is it that makes a person happy? Is happiness found in directing oneself outward or inward? For example, is job satisfaction to be found in the fact that it enables me to feed and clothe my family? Or is it to be found in the fact that the very actions involved in my work bring me a sense of inner psychological well-being. The answer I give speaks eloquently of what I consider the purpose of life and the meaning of happiness. In sum, it is indicative of how I think of myself, end quote. This inward turn is everywhere around us in our society. Everyone is constantly concerned with ourselves, fulfilling our own desires. And the way that this inward turn toward the self typically manifests is through sexual desire. And this, as we've seen already in this book, is what Jude has in mind here as well. Sin is selfishness. And sin makes us want to follow our own desires above everything else. An unbridled sexual desire is particularly insidious and harmful to you and to everyone around you. British author J.R.R. Tolkien had a wonderful ability to make his characters feel true to life, particularly in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And his infamous villain, Gollum, is the perfect picture of what it looks like to think of nothing else but your own desire and to follow after that with everything you have. This hobbit-like creature was completely obsessed with his own selfish pleasure, objectified in the one ring. He sought it above everything else. For those who've read the books or seen the movies, what is Gollum like? Do you remember? He's gaunt and pale, dwelling in dank darkness. He's stinking and slinking and slithering. 
He's unwashed and dirty, revolting to look at, and depraved in act and speech. He's untrustworthy. He's conniving. He's murderous, twisted, and disturbed and wicked. Gollum has one goal. Get the ring at any cost. The ring is the great object of his desire, but as Gandalf tells Frodo, Gollum hates and loves the ring, just as he hates and loves himself. How fitting, then, is this a description of, of someone enraptured with sinful desire? Sin distorts us, and those who completely who, who are completely given over to their sinful desires, who seek nothing else but following after what they want, are like Gollum. They are these, for lack of a better word, they're these disgusting, depraved creatures, loving and hating their sin in equal measure, living lives of despair and ruin all the while thinking they'll be better if they only get what they want whenever they want it. This is the picture that Jude is painting for us. And this is what you and I see all around us in the world today. Our family members and friends and co-workers and neighbors, even at times we are like this as well. Where we can get lost in our sin and think of nothing else but fulfilling our own sinful desires. This kind of dogged pursuit of selfish desire has even crept into the church, and for that we lament. Beloved, let us not obey our passions, but let us live only for Christ, pursuing the things that Christ requires of us and would have us to pursue, those things that lead to life and godliness and Christ-likeness. Along with following these, their, uh, their own sinful desires, they are loud-mouthed boasters. These men boast in themselves, in their own works, in the things that they can do. It hardly needs to be uh, said that loud-mouthed boasting is a a pretty good picture of our society as well, is it not? Part of our world's proclivity of subjecting everything to the authority to the self, the autonomy of the self, is the idea that we need to let everyone else know just how great we are. And we won't, and other people won't know how great we are unless we tell them. And we have to tell them any and every way we can. Social media is often filled with nothing but self-promotion. Everyone trying to scream the loudest about their own worth and importance to gain the approval and the acceptance of others. Again, we we, we can see how easily this uh, attitude has been engrafted and enfolded into the church as well. To give another example from the PCA, uh, a notorious pastor in our denomination has lately been on a self-promotion kick timed with the release of his book. His loudmouth boasting of his own accomplishment is blatant and puts the focus on himself and away from Christ. That's the great danger with self-promotion in the church. It becomes all about me, 
instead of being all about Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, who selflessly gave himself up for his precious bride, the church. And as he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, he uttered not a word, not a word in self-promotion and in boasting in his own accomplishments. These men are loudmouth boasters, and they also show favoritism to gain advantage. This is yet another sin that Jude takes aim at. These men in the church in that day, like many today, sought to surround themselves with yes-men who never disagree and who only play favorites, giving advantages to their friends or their family members. Their every interaction seeks to get something from someone else or put someone else in their debt so that they can cash in a favor at a later date. But Another New Testament author, Jude's brother, James, tells us that this is not the way and cannot be the way that Christians behave in the church. Turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, James takes aim at this sin of partiality, this sin of showing favoritism to gain advantage. We read starting in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 13. James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Those who show partiality in the church are not loving their neighbors as themselves. They are showing favoritism and are subjecting themselves to the condemnation of the Lord because they fail to keep the law at every point. These men prove themselves to be dishonorable men, unworthy of the name of Christ. This is what Jude is telling us, that these men show favoritism to gain advantage. All of these things that Jude lists in, chapter, in verse 16 so aptly describe our world, do they not? All around us, you and I see grumbling and discontented complainers. 
We see those who follow their own desires, who boast in themselves and who show favoritism to gain advantage for themselves and for their friends. Grab your phone and open your favorite social media app and you will see every single one of these sins in a single scrolling session. But you and I, dear one, are called to deny these temptations, to not act in these ungodly ways. That's the basic understanding that we must have. At minimum, the Christian should not act this way. And when he or she does We repent of our sin and we turn to Christ. But Christian, it's not enough for you to simply avoid these vices. Now, the Lord requires more than simply avoiding ungodliness. You must also pursue godliness. You and I must contend for the faith by living godly lives which please the Lord. And how do we do that? How do you and I do that? Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, we get... We get an answer to that question. How do we pursue godliness? There, Paul commands us to, quote, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Instead of imitating these men, we must imitate God. And so what does that look like? Instead of being... uh, as Jude calls these men, instead of being these grumbling malcontents, you and I are commanded by the Lord to be thankful to God for what he has given to us, for the amazing grace that he has shown to us in Christ, and to be content in all things, taking whatever the Lord chooses to give us as thankful and obedient children living under our heavenly Father's care. And we see wonderful examples of what this looks like all around us in the church, in our very own church. I think of Ron Jacobs. When he was diagnosed with cancer and going through chemotherapy, he didn't whine or complain, but humbly pursued the Lord through his treatment and submitted to to, to God's sovereign hand. Likewise, Cindy Wilkins, who's in the midst of a lot of medical uncertainty and is going to undergo a, a surgery in May, Yet through it all, she praises God. She's thankful to the Lord rather than complaining against him. Beloved, follow the examples of these saints and others in finding contentment in the Lord and in not grumbling and complaining against him, but being thankful to God, knowing that our great God is working out everything for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So that's the first thing. We must be thankful and content. We must also follow God's word and his will. The world, the flesh, and the devil tell us to pursue our desires above all else, to be committed to ourselves before we're committed to others. But Christians cannot live this way. No, you and I must live in conformity to Christ. We must live in a way that pleases our Savior. The ungodly follow their own sinful desires, but the man or woman of God must follow God's word, must seek God's will, must live always quorum Deo before the face of God. This means that you and I must die to ourselves as Pastor John preached to us this morning from Romans chapter 6. 
We are in Christ dead to sin. Dead to sin. So we no longer live in it. We no longer follow our passions. Romans 6.12, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Sin no longer has control over us. Therefore, we must not follow our sinful desires, but must follow Jesus Christ. We must, as Christ tells us, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ. That is our calling. Likewise, we're not to be these loudmouth boasters. No, if Christians are to boast in anything, it can't be in our own accomplishments. But rather, in humility and love, we must boast only in the Lord, as Paul tells the Corinthians. I think of that wonderful hymn by Isaac Watts, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, the second stanza there. Watts writes, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. This is the attitude of humility that you and I must have because the message of the cross is that you and I and everyone are wretched sinners. We're only worthy of God's condemnation. There is no room, dear ones, for boasting for the Christian because nothing we have is ours. It all belongs to God. To be saved by God's grace alone through Christ alone and then think that we're worthy of praise is the height of arrogance. It's the height of blasphemy. Christians then must be humble and self-deprecating, not proud or boastful. And likewise, showing favoritism to gain advantage is forbidden in the church, as we saw in James chapter 2. Now, instead of seeking to use other people for what they can give me, you and I must be committed to loving and respecting all people, but especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. God Our great God does not show partiality or favoritism. So neither can you or I. Dear ones, Jude's word to these churches, his his word to you and to me, the Lord's word to you and to me is clear. Judgment is coming. All the ungodly will be severely judged for their works of ungodliness. On that day, no Wickedness, not a single amount of sin will be overlooked. None of the ungodly will escape God's justice. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes a list of vices that's very similar to the one that Jude gives here in verse 16. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. All men and women, Paul is saying, all boys and girls who commit these sins and others will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not be saved from God's wrath on that great judgment day. Grumblers, malcontents, those who follow their own sinful desires, the loudmouth boasters and those who show favoritism will not inherit the kingdom of God. They'll be judged by Christ and condemned for their ungodliness. 
But in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11, Paul goes on to say, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The only way not to receive the just punishment for your sin is if someone else has paid for it. On the cruel cross, Christ bore the sins of all God's people, all the elect, perfectly satisfying divine justice because he was that perfect, spotless lamb of God who bore your sin and mine. And his glorious resurrection three days later guarantees that all those who believe in him by grace alone, through faith alone, will not be condemned on that final day of judgment because we will be found not having a righteousness of our own, but instead we will be wrapped in, that, in those spotless robes of righteousness that Christ has won for us. And those perfect robes of righteousness can only be yours if you believe in Christ. If you repent of your sins and turn to Christ, you will be saved. So I'd urge you, come to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you once again for this time we have together in your word. This time we have set set aside to worship and adore you. We thank you, O Lord, that you saved your people through Christ, our Savior. We thank you that Christ bore all of our sins. They are nailed to the cross, and we bear them no more. We thank you, O God, for salvation that we have through Christ, and we thank you for Christ himself, who is ours by grace through faith. We pray, O Lord, that you would um, bless us and make us more like our precious.